unless you're in a fucking movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger where all of a sudden they're doing like, you know, a thousand round dumps without reloading. I'm like, you got to have a reload. If anybody can take anything listening from what I have to say, it's not what you can do. It's what you can recover. And if you're not building in recovery, you're building in devastation, either short or long term. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into Power Athlete Radio. Oh boy, hold on to your seats because we have Matt Wenning on the show today. And as we find out, the world of powerlifting is not without drama. He shares some juicy details about his relationship with Westside Barbell and his bumpy path to becoming one of the world's best lifters. Knowledge, gossip, intrigue, and a lot of talk about powerlifting. This show has everything. Here it is, episode 604. Matt, we had the opportunity to come visit in your gym, and it was a beautiful space, and you opened your doors up for us to grab a lift when we were up at the Arnold. So it was yep. excellent to to meet you in person, and that that's what spawned this opportunity through our, our pal Josh at Train Heroic. And we can explore some more cars and a lot more. So all-time world record holder at Equip Squat, Raw Squat, Masters in Biomechanics, which we were wrapping on a little bit, you and I, and then working with all sorts of athletes from tactical to you had a professional athlete in there at the time. And then I've seen you speak at NSCA about working with novice athletes. So there mm-hmm. is so much for us to explore today. Uh, John, anything you'd like to kick off with? No, dude, you actually have done a really good job of setting the table for this podcast. Yeah, Matt. So let's, uh, this, I did a 10,000 foot view. If you have anything to add. Yeah. Not, not polishing my own knob or anything, but you know, being, being one of the top five lifters in the world in my weight classes for 15 years with no injuries, because most people that do shit that I do, you know, they're around for a year or two and then they're gone. So for me, it was learning how to train not only hard, but very smart was the way that I felt set me apart from a lot of people. I find, you find there are a handful of strong people in each generation that would be all-time world record holders, but they don't last very long because they train either very stupid or they just, they don't have that long-term thought process. And I always wanted to get as strong as I could and reduce the mileage as much as I could, which at first was a selfish plan. But what it actually did was teach me how to train other people for long-term careers. You know, the big difference between training an athlete, say as like a pro football player is, you know, they might be around if they're lucky two to six years in the NFL when we get these guys in the fire department, they got to be around for 30 years. And that changes the, the spectrum of how and what you're going to do training these training these athletes find is they've taught me as much as I've taught them because I'm very thoughtful of mileage when we're doing stuff. I can't, I can't put an exercise that's going to beat somebody to the ground if it's only going to make them stronger for the next six months, but the next 20 years they're going to pay for it. And in the NFL, you know, you're trying to get as much as you can out of every person as long as you can, but the lifespan is usually not a 20-year career, so your thought process and training is a little bit different. Hey, Power Athlete Nation. I need to take a few moments to thank our sponsor, Power Athlete Training Systems, for providing the best training programs on the universe, in the universe, in the metaverse. I mean, really, if this is the matrix, and I'm pretty sure we're stuck in the matrix, Neo and Morpheus are uploading power athlete training systems. I'm pretty sure they're doing field strong. What do you think, McCorkle? Oh, I agree. They are on a specific training program for what they need. And to find out what you need, listeners, 
Head to PowerAthleteHQ.com forward slash training and take our little survey to find the perfect training program for you. So we have developed training programs specific for an archetype. You want to get jacked, we got Jack Street. If you're looking to foster and develop athleticism, we got Field Strong. If you're looking to kick the door off of hinges and smash things and cut up and just be a fucking badass, we got Hammer. If your first experience in terms of lifting weights and getting used to a barbell using a basic linear progression with Bedrock, that's the right one for you. And if you have a few miles underneath your belt, maybe a few kids, Fortune 500 CEO, or maybe life's getting a little in the way, I want you to check out Grindstone. And if your job and your desire is to fucking wad your face off, I want you to go check out Johnny Wad. And if you want to stack on a little Johnny bot on that and hit a little bodybuilding accessory, we got that too. So what we've done is we've created this amazing catalog of services, these training programs designed for archetypes, and every one of them fits a specific user. And you know what? If you want to find that user, go on. I want you to take the survey, and then I want you to click on and take our seven-day free trial and see which one is right for you. Best-in-class training. And for less than a dollar a day, you mm. get it delivered straight to the mobile app Train Heroic. Mm-hmm. And if you want to sign up for our newsletter, you can go to powerathletehq.com forward slash or backslash forward slash forward slash newsletter. I want you to go to that, sign up for the newsletter where you can get more information, not only on training programs, get uh, discounts on shop on the merch, and really just know what's going on within Power Athlete with the Academy and some of our other initiatives. And the latest episodes of Power Athlete Radio. Which is really the most important thing. Power Athlete Radio the premier podcast of strength and conditioning and your resource for the best information on training, nutrition, cars, maybe some movies, banter and banter. I mean, we've been on other fitness podcasts and when it comes to banter, we can fucking out banter anybody. Yes. And if you're a big fan of power athlete radio, don't forget to smash that subscribe button. Hit us with a five-star review that we will read. If you leave us an amazing five-star review, we will read it on air. And believe me, I love reading the reviews, uh, especially the five-star ones, because it lets us know we're doing a good job. And we got some very creative listeners out there. We do. I mean, uh, that's why there are people. Yes. Throw your hat into the ring. Again, head to powerathletehq.com forward slash training for all your training needs. Take a little survey. Find out what you're training for. Seven-day free trial on that program and training for less than $1. Thanks for Power Athlete Radio for sponsoring this podcast. <laughs> See ya. Bye. Bye. And take us back to your beginning. So you went to school and studied health and then biomechanics for the master's degree. Like did training, was that a part of your youth? Was it sports that oh, led you to the barbell? How'd you begin? Huge. So, well, it starts before that. So six years old, I'm I'm out in my neighborhood playing, playing around on bicycles with my friend. I get demolished by a car at 50 miles an hour by a drunk driver. Um, that breaks my right leg in six, my left in four shatters my pelvis. So I'm bedridden the entire first grade for a whole year. They pull, I had the cast. I don't know if you saw it in the gym. I have the original cast for my right leg in there. And um, uh, so I had to learn how to walk again. I had to learn how to stand again. Um, my legs were the size of this fucking pencil when I got out. And um, so everything on my feet hurt. So I gravitated to swimming. And I was a pretty good sprinter. So I would swim the 50, uh, 50 free was my deal. And um, because it didn't hurt my legs and slowly, but surely at seven, eight years old, my legs started to recoup themselves 
my mom, if she was sitting here right now, could tell you that she would cringe listening to me trying to play T-ball because when I would run to first base, you could hear my knees in the stands cracking mm -hmm. and from just all the scar tissue and all the beat down. So with that being said, I don't have a lot of, you know, a lot of softness for people going, Oh, I can't squat my knees hurt or I can't do this. My back hurts So get the fuck out of here. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, so at 11 years old, I'm coming in from playing with my playing with my friends and my uncle. I lived with this at the time. He was probably only 21. And he was kind of a partier and didn't ever really could hold a real job. And, but he was always really athletic. So he brings this sand filled set of weights and I'm 11. I'm about, a, I'm not a big kid. I'm like probably 150 pounds at 11 years old. And I'm not like muscular, but I'm, I'm not fat either. Kind of just what you call old school Husky. Right. So I walk in and I see my uncle and he's, a, he's working at a, uh, at a steel mill at the time. So he's doing 10, 12 hour shifts and, picking up castings. He's pretty veined out and pretty lean, not a big guy, like 170 pounds. And he's benching like 135. And my uncle's like, Oh, you want to train with me? And I'm like, yeah, why not? You know? So we're in our family room and he's got these old sand filled weights. He's getting ready to strip it down to the bar. And I said, no, I'll do the weight you're doing. And he's like, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to get hurt. And I kept arguing with him. He said, fine, fucker, just go ahead and try it. You know? So he hands it out to me and I do it for 10 <laughs> and he's, freaking out he's like holy shit man you can do this for 10 and i'm like yeah i'm like it didn't wasn't that heavy because i was you know i was i was swimming all the time so my shoulders were already a little developed i already had a little bit of triceps and uh he was so impressed and that started the process you know you just impressed your cool uncle and so i asked my mom hey you know can you get me a uh, a membership to the y and she's like yeah because it was only a mile down the road well it just got so i got so lucky in in this timeline that at this little tiny town YMCA, there was a guy named Tim Smith that bench pressed 500 at 185 pounds of body weight in 1986. Yeah. And he could still press 500 then. And the guy that taught him was a guy named Jim Dawson that deadlifted 722 in 1970. Keep in mind, nobody had pulled 800 yet. So he was one of the strongest deadlifters in the Midwest. And they're in this little shithole YMCA. And they see me and they don't talk to me for probably a couple of weeks. And you know, I'm trying to read a little bit and figure out what I'm doing. And I just want to, I just want to get my legs stronger because my legs were smaller and they were beat up, which is funny because those become probably the lifts I'm most known for. And, um, they see me trying and working out and Timmy comes up to me and he's like, man, you're pretty big for a high school kid. And I said, no, I'm in sixth grade. And he's like, Whoa, what? Fuck. And he's like, no, you're coming to lift with us. So he drags me in and starts training me and, the rest was history. By eighth grade, I'm benching 250. By my freshman year, I had all the state records in that in that division. And by the time I was 16, 17, I was nationally ranked. And by the time I was 19, I won my first Worlds. And uh, that's really started the process for me to learn and grow. And then um, I met a guy um, through my mom's um, work friend um, that was John Torrey, which was the head strength coach for the Indianapolis Colts. And he's like, well, it's going to take a lot more than just being a strong kid to do that. Keeping in mind that at 19, you know, I just won my first Worlds. Um, the big uh, TV station, Channel 6, from Indianapolis had come and done a piece on me. Um, and I could do 45 reps with 225 at 19 years old, which was, I'm pretty sure, better than everybody in the NFL combine that year. And But keep in mind, I'm, I'm just a lifter. I'm not a, really a football player. so. I, I give all the respect in the world for those guys, but I was very, very strong at 19. So 
long story short, um, the Arnold Classic at that time was still mostly pro bodybuilding, pro strongman, pro powerlifting. It isn't the shit show that it is today. And um, a friend of mine, Brad, we went. He he drove me over there, and I see Louis Simmons, and I see Dave Tate, and Jerry Abradovich, and um, uh, George Halbert, and Kenny Patterson walking out. And George Halbert had just won the bench bash for cash, doing like seven sixty six on the bench at two twenty. And he's walking out, and I see Louis and Brad just like nudges me, go go talk to that fucking guy. You're not going to get any stronger staying in Indiana. So I finally get the balls, which is, you know, I'm, I'm a big kid at 19, but I'm not Westside Barbell Beefcake, right? So I walk over and I'm like, hey, Louie, you know, and he turns around and I'm like, my name is Matt Winning. You know, I'm a 500-pound bencher at 19 years old, and I'd like to come over and train with you guys sometime if, if I can. He's like, oh, you seem pretty strong, man. Come on over sometime. So I get the balls about maybe, I'd say, two months later. I call him. He answers the phone. And he's like, yeah, we're going to squat on Friday. Come on down, you know. And so I go and squat, and uh, I'm with the the stronger crew, which is Bogopool's group. And I'm squatting, you know, seven, which is really good. And these guys are squatting in the thousands, so I'm not even in the same fucking stratosphere. Well, I stay at Louie's house that night, get up in the morning, and I bench with George. And I hit a five. They were doing a raw bench at that time, and I hit something around 500, and George comes up to me, and his coaching cue is, your triceps are fucking garbage, dude, and walks away. And, you know, I, and th- this is funny because at the time I'm using linear periodization. I don't fucking know. Right. So I'm my shoulders are strong. My pecs are strong. And my arms are OK. I'm starting to get shoulder pain all the time because I'm, you know, I'm doing 12, 10, 8, 7, 6s. And I'm bench pressing with a straight bar all the time. I don't understand shit. And so I go over to Louie and I say, hey, you know, after in my mind at first, I'm like, hey, fuck this guy. Like I bench 500 pounds at 19, you know. And he's calling me weak. But after I swallow my pride after 10 or 15 minutes, I go over and talk to Louie. And I'm like, hey, George is telling me my triceps are not any good. And um, what do I need to do to fix that? And he shows me these tricep extensions like rollbacks and full Dave Tate fold ins and all this other shit. So I take this home and I probably don't go back to Westside for, I'd say, three to five months. I'm still talking to Louie a little bit on the phone, but I don't understand anything about conjugate right now. But I'm busting ass on my triceps. So I come back the next time and he could tell that I started training real hard. And I started getting this meat on my elbow, you know, like I was really training that, that medial head tricep. And as soon as George saw that I was working on what my weakness was and I didn't have this ego to me, like, you know, fuck this guy. He's telling me how to fix my shit. He was an open book. Now he's teaching me the bands. He's showing me technique work. Cause he's like, now I know this guy just wants to get better. And that's what people didn't understand about Westside Barbell is you didn't go in there to get coached. You got in there to get berated. You know, you got in there to get humiliated. And it was the job of the lifters at the time that were full time. If you were a, um, you know, a, a visitor or a part time lifter, your job as a full time Westside guy was to never let an outsider beat your ass. So that that time that my triceps, I'm, my, you see some tricep development. <clears throat> There's a 400 pound guy in there named Tilt, and he's five, 10, six foot, 400 pounds. He's not all solid. And I kick his ass on these tricep extensions. Keep up with me. And Louie's like, You fat piece of shit. You got a kid coming from another state, and he's beating your ass. And uh, 
that's when I started to gain some respect at the gym and people started realizing I was going to work my ass off. Um, so then the relationship between me and Louie was really good. He started donating reverse hypers to Ball State University. Uh, Wade Russell was the head strength coach there, played for the Dolphins and the Bengals. He was my mentor. And he donated a ton of equipment to the athletic weight room. And we were the first that I know of. We were the first powerlifting team that was allowed to train in the athletic weight room in a Division One college. So now not only are we helping with the teams, we're also able to train with the football uh, crew stadium. I mean, we didn't train at the same time that the athletes trained, but we had keys. We could go in and work out in the weight room. We had amazing sound systems and, you know, a lo- much larger budget than what you'd ever see at YMCA. And a lot of it came from, you know, obviously the John Touring starting the process of me getting into school. Louie starting to show me how to train smarter. Fast forward a couple of years, I have all the collegiate American records. I won collegiate nationals as one of the only conjugate guys because back then, you know, and even now, people in the USAPL train like total idiots. Hmm. So they were doing all this linear periodization shit and specificity. And Louie's teaching me all this variety. So I'm not squatting with a straight bar every week. I'm not benching with a straight bar every week. I'm doing all this weird shit. And now I'm showing up at these collegiate nationals and I'm decimating everyone. So in 2003, I'm ranked third in the world in men's open and I'm a junior. So now it's like, oh shit, I think Matt Winning knows what's going on. So 2004, I get into my graduate program and um, I, I'm one of the younger guys to squat 900 and I do it at under 300 pounds. And that's when Louie was like, this guy's legit. He might, he might be able to break a world record. 2005, I'm finishing my thesis and I don't have – I have enough time to train, but not really compete. You know how I'm sure one, one of you guys are, you guys know people that have master's degrees. If you're doing it at a real school where like guys like Dr. Kramer and Dr. Volick are your professors, you're not putting out shit information and the schooling is very, very hard. So in 2005, I didn't really get to do any meets per se. And then at the end of 05, I finished my degree. I move over to train at Louis full time. And then I go from being probably 17th in the world to the top 10 within about a year. Um, and that was kind of how Louie and I's relationship started. I started writing articles for powerlifting USA for Westside Barbell. I started, uh, you know, I had met, I had met Mark Bell there at the time. Um, so it started a lot of relationships that changed not only my lifting career, but also my professional career at that time. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the, uh, um, like how did it, uh, kind of finish? I mean, when we were at, uh, at your gym, um, you know, obviously I saw a squat suit and I saw the, uh, uh, kind of the numbers and everything you'd obviously written on there. So obviously 2004, 2005, you finish your thesis and now you become just a full-time lifter and decide to go on and set some world records. How did that all progress? And, yeah, so- and, 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 and up until this point, uh, no injuries. I mean, I know you yeah. know you had the stuff when you were a kid, but I mean, none. And you know what it was, is if you look at my career from 13 to, say, I retired at 38, it was a gradual build. You know, I was getting 20, 30 pounds stronger every year on the bench, maybe 50 on lucky years. I was getting 50, 75 pounds stronger on squats and deadlifts every year. This wasn't something where automatically I went from this to this, you know. There was only Mm -hmm. one year I did that, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. That's not quite on the timeline yet. So in 2005 – was the first year that Louis Simmons started to recruit lifters outside of West Side. So you got to remember, like Kenny Patterson 
Jefferson and George Halbert and Dave, not Dave Tate so much, but a lot of the guys that made Westside famous, Matt Dimmel, you know, the first guy to squat a thousand pounds from Westside Barbell. Those guys were degenerates from the West side of Columbus. And at that time was one of the worst ghettos in the Midwest. It was like a Detroit. And Louie was taking these guys that had no future and making them world champions. So my generation of guys were the first guys that he started um, out of state. Well, I'm coming from India. Greg Panora is coming from Maine. Phil is coming from North Carolina. We're starting to create this group I consider the best powerlifting group ever assembled. Our average squat of the group was 1,030. Our average bench was 715. And if you didn't deadlift 800, you didn't, you didn't lift with us. I mean, imagine that six straight guys in a crew can all do that. Never be assembled again. And so Louie had a really good crew. Well, we started going to APF seniors and breaking all the records. And Greg starts breaking world records. And I'm up in the top five with a master's degree. I'm writing stuff for Louie. I'm developing the West Side certification I got hundreds of hours in it, which initially was taken from me, but that's a different story. But um, I started I started having issues with Louie when um, the Cleveland Browns. Um, so Buddy Morris is a Cleveland Browns head strength coach at the time. Buddy Morris comes down to the gym and starts to see me, not only my size and strength, but also he starts talking to me and knowing that this isn't some meathead guy from the west side of Columbus. This dude's smart. And he needs a new assistant because Tommy Malinsky is getting ready to leave. And so he's talking to me and he talks to Louie. He's like, hey, Louie, what do you think about winning coming up and taking the first assistant job to Cleveland Browns? Keep in mind, I'm only out of school for a year. I mean, who goes into the pros as first assistant in one year out of grad school? I've never heard of that. So Buddy Morris is showing interest in me. And so Louie's kind of asking me, hey, what do you think about going up and helping the Browns finally win some fucking games or, you know, or something because they, they're a shit team. And I'm like, man, that'd be an awesome opportunity. Well, in reality, what Louie saw was, well, Matt's going to start backing off the lifting. He's working on a professional career. He didn't like that because to him, you know, if you're not about making the West Side barbell record board bigger, there's no sense in you being there. He didn't kick me out at the time. It was, but that was where, you know, the knuckle started button a little. I could see that he's trying to feel out if, if I'm world world record holder material, I'm just doing this because I'm trying to advance myself. And reality, it was both. I wanted to be a great strength coach and I wanted to work with top level people, but I knew and personally, I never wanted to be the guy that was telling other people what to do without pushing my body the limits first. But if a first assistant job at six figures is going to fall into my lap, well, what the fuck, right? I mean, I'm at Westside and I'm making probably $1,000, maybe $1,500 a month. And now I need to, I want to be better than that. I'm not tired of living like shit, you know. But Louis sees that as kind of a sellout point, in this, but it's not. So this is a funny story. So I'm hired by the Cleveland Browns. <sighs> Sorry about that. I, I'm hired by the Cleveland Browns and um, they don't, they don't, I never work a day. They fire Buddy Morris when Romeo Cornell comes in. Buddy Morris doesn't even know he's being fired and I don't have a fucking job. And I'm thinking to myself right then and there, fuck the pros. I'm, there's no security in it. And 
I'm going to make my own fucking way and I'm going to decide if I get hired or fired. And that was, that was the tipping point for me in my career to go solo. And that was kind of a breath of fresh air to Louie because now he knows he's got me a little longer. So now I'm moving into the top five in the world. I got a 2,500 pound total. Um, but then I started taking information from different places. I start talking to Dr. Zatsiorski. I have direct contact with him because Kramer was his adjunct professor. Now, anybody that knows anything about training knows Zatsiorski is probably the smartest fucking guy to ever even talk about weight training next to Vorkashansky, Bevdiev, and a couple other guys. Noticing I'm not mentioning any people from America, right? <laughs> so, um, so I have direct contact with Zatsiorski, and he's given me a lot of this, this information that's translated from the Soviets because a lot of the books that were really about training couldn't get our hands on because they were all Soviet literature. But Zatsiorski was in charge of the entire Soviet system from around 65 to 85. So he saw all and saw all the data and all the stuff. And he's telling me, Matt, you know, you might be utilizing too much gear and you need to get more muscle mass to get stronger at this point. So we're showing bar speed and dynamic method and all this other shit. And I go back to Louie and I'm like, Louie, I think we're in briefs and suits too much. We need to start going raw. Nah, we don't need to do that shit. You know, we need to, we need to stay our course and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, man, I'm telling you, we need to start going raw. So I start, so he's like, yeah, fuck it. Fine. Do what you want to do. So me, Panora, Harrington, and a couple other guys, we take the gear off one week. Then we go very marginal gear the next week. And then we go gear to the max. So basically what we're doing is we're creating a tier system of, you know, your wall, even though you're training, right, you're not hitting 1100 pound squats. You're maybe doing 850 ish range with just a belt. So what I noticed was is I was actually deloading on my raw days and maximally loading muscle tissue. And then as the weeks progressed, I was using neurological loading. And then when I would put the gear fully on, my muscles were fucking huge from doing all this failure, raw work and all this other shit. Well, case, case in point, uh, Greg goes to his next meet, breaks the all-time world record at 242. I go to the meet, I knock jail Holdsworth off the board and I bench right under 800 pounds in a shirt, which put me as the strongest bench presser as a power lifter. We had one guy that was better than me and he was a bench only guy weighing like 400 pounds. I weighed like 303 and I was doing basically the same weight he was after squatting. And now Louie's kind of op opening up for what I'm learning, but I'm using a Bill Crawford style bench press shirt style, which is, you know, you keep your hands, you let your elbows flare out until the shirt grabs completely. Then you roll into a tuck and then you let your elbows come back out off the shirt. And it just, it just boom. Right. Well, Louie's idea was to keep your elbows tucked the whole time and roll your body and then throw it back. It never worked for a lot of us. My bench was stuck at around 700 for about a year and a half. I learned Bill Crawford teaches me this and I go to 800 like that same bench shirt. And, uh, and I was also getting stronger at the same time. So after that, Louie's starting to get some animosity because I'm not necessarily listening to everything he's telling me to do. I'm starting to piece what's working together for me. And that's what I remember Louie being in the day was you experiment and you find what works for you and then you push the limit. At that point, there was a lot of stress. You know, him and Chuck Vogelpool were having a lot of problems um, just with coaching style and just, you know, just personality. And uh, so he was getting a lot of stress on that. And I'm kind of learning my own way of what's working. So case comes to a head. We're doing one of those raw squat sessions. And I mean, shit, I got like 750 on the bar and just a belt doing it for triples. I mean, for anybody, quipped or raw, that's an insane squat. 
And Louie's bitching at me the entire time. This fucking shit ain't going to work. And you don't know what the hell you're talking about. And I finally just, you know, I'm on a bunch of drugs. I'm just like, listen, motherfucker, if you don't like what we're doing, I'm okay with it. But go sit in the corner and we'll talk about it when I'm fucking done squatting. I was just had enough. And he's laughing it off. But deep down, he's pissed. And so I'm the only guy that has my own office at Westside Barbell. So I go the next day, I go in the office and George Halbert comes in and makes this weird statement to me. He's like, hey, man, get a hold of me later. And I'm thinking, OK, you know, and then not 20 minutes later, Louie comes in. And he's like, hey, I don't think you're a good figure anymore. And I'm like, what are you talking about? All I've been doing is getting better the whole time I'm here. And that's when I started to realize that that was more ego involved than just getting better. And so he kicks me out of the gym and I'm distraught because I've moved all the way over here from Indiana, you know, and I, I don't have any money and I'm, I'm just, I'm just in a bad spot. And Chuck Vogelpool calls me, which is his key lifter. He had left um, a couple of months prior and he's like, you know what? You need to come and train with me. I'll let you do what you want to do. You've been getting better the whole time. Let's, let's put a team together and let's kick Louie's ass. Yeah, let's do it. So there's another gym down the road that didn't have any key lifters, but now they had me and Chuck. So we created a team called Team Extreme. We found this other lifter um, that was an amazing guy, super strong, didn't last very long, but very, very strong. Um, and uh, we made a team together. And next thing you know, nine months later, I go to his pro-am, Louis Simmons' pro-am, and I take all of his money. So I not only break the all-time world record, I go from like fourth best in the world to the best in the world in one jump, which is that big stratosphere jump that I told you about. And really what it was is I was training the same way that Louie had taught me, max effort, dynamic effort, et cetera. I just was building in deloads where I was recovering. So now instead of running myself into the fucking ground every week, I would go meet, I would go easy, medium, berserk, deload, easy and medium, berserk, deload. And what I started to notice is with that wave, my body just kept adapting and adapting. And that's where everybody screws up. You can train as hard as you want, but if you don't adapt to it, it doesn't mean shit. So I learned what my body and how it was ticking. And Greg is seeing this at the same time going, holy shit, Matt's onto something. And that really burnt his ass. And I said a lot of things I shouldn't have said. You know, I was, Louis handed me the money and the, the, the magazines are taking the picture of I'm the best lifter in the world record holder. And I look at him and I go, I told you I was going to come back and take all your money, motherfucker. And that's when shit hit the fan because now I couldn't hold my mouth back because I just proved a point, right? And at that time, I felt like, you know, that was warranted. But looking back at it now, it was just, I was a 28-year-old fucking snot-nosed kid, and I knew what I was doing, but I didn't need to tell anybody. I was already showing everybody what I was doing. And so by 2010, I opened up my own facility, and that's when I started getting a lot of, um, and it happened before that, but I started getting a lot of attention from the U.S. Army Rangers and the local fire departments. I started getting all these military contracts with, um, and this is fast forwarding five or six years, but, you know, I start off at Ranger Regiment. Then I go to Fourth Infantry at Fort Carson, Colorado, which goes from 700 guys to like five, 6,000 guys that I'm in charge of. And then I move to 82nd Airborne at Fort Bragg. And then I'm part of Border Patrol. And all this time, these fire departments locally are saying, Jesus Christ, this guy's local. We need to get him on board. So within the last I'd say 10 years, I've been in charge of four fire departments. And uh, now I just actually just got hired by a, within the last year and a half, the lar- one of the largest Ford dealerships in the country because they're getting so many injuries with diesel mechanics. So, I, you know, working on cars, 
you know, you're leaned over in weird positions. You got dudes that are involved with that shit. They don't exercise or work out other than on their feet all day. They're not doing any restorative movements like reverse hypers and hamstring specificity. So we start plugging this idea I have in my head of like what I'm using with the, the fire department. And wouldn't you know it, injury rates, whoop, they go way down and start saving insurance premiums. So now with that happening, you know, I'm so busy at home now. Friday is really my only day I can do what I want to do. Corporate for performance. It's a weird thing. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's hard to convince people that actually lifting weights will benefit them in the long run. And I think, uh, I mean, who would think diesel mechanics? I mean, normally those guys are like a, a chain hoist and a forklift. But, I mean, that makes a ton of sense. I want to go back to something you said earlier with the linear progression and then learning into the conjugate. Now you have the opportunity to work with younger athletes. Do you still see value in applying that linear progression? And then when they tap out, hit their base level, introduce conjugate style. Well, you know, it's hard because we can't live 20 different lives in the same body. I wish I could go back and experiment 20 different ways. Maybe the way conjugate works so well for me is because I did have a linear periodization base. But also, I also started in the linear periodization uh, to switch to conjugate with just a little bit of mileage because I was young enough that I wasn't already beat up. And you find that most people aren't willing to fix anything until it's too late. I was young enough to where it wasn't too late. I do think that there is some benefit to linear periodization, but there are some limitations. One, your technique to doing sets of 10 and 12 must be flawless. And what you find for beginners and intermediate lifters is that once fatigue sets in, technique drastically gets worse. And what I find is higher volume parameters end up causing more technical issues. And this is why, in my personal opinion, CrossFit's so fucking deadly and dangerous is because you're doing high um, high skill movements under fatigue, which you would never fucking do. Yeah. And you have to be very careful doing that kind of shit. I'm not saying that there aren't benefits to every type of mode of training, but I will say this, most modes other than the conjugate system tend to avoid certain parts of the three parameters of training, which are maximum effort, dynamic effort, and repetition method. What you find is that linear periodization is mostly repetition method with no thought process on bar speed, right? I mean, if we could have learned anything from Dr. Fred Hatfield, it should have been, and Louis Simmons, it should have been compensatory acceleration. Yeah. You need to get faster to get fucking stronger. And yeah, but it helps to be strong before, uh, like, so what, what we ran into a lot, and we use a linear periodization just because it gives people a basic opportunity to get underneath. On our bedrock program. On our bedrock program. Uh, but what we found was that, uh, teaching compensatory acceleration when people were weak was almost fucking next to useless. Oh, oh yes. There's definitely a timeline to it. So don't get it twisted. I'm not saying that's where it should start. But what I'm saying is that you notice that people usually when they see success at a beginner or intermediate level with a certain type of program, they're very hesitant to change yeah. what they've already done. So yeah. I'm not saying speed work is necessarily usable for the beginner. But what I'm saying is that you better not avoid it once that technical base has been set. This is kind of an interesting kind of observation that we've just made over the years. Most people really fit into that beginner intermediate category and they never really take the jump into that. And the problem becomes because they don't necessarily use the proper program at the right time. What I, yeah. and what blew me away when I first retired from the NFL and I got approached by CrossFit, people kept asking me, Hey, what do you do for your training? Why would you think that my training program would reap benefits for you? Uh, yeah. You have to train within, uh, you know, your level of adaptation and what you're good at, or more importantly, like, 
where you fit within this kind of like longer timeline, this continuum of strength. And uh, that's when I started looking at it and realizing like there's certain training programs that work really well for individuals at that exact moment. And I mean, like a classic example is uh, like Jim's uh, 531. I mean, it's kind of that intermediate program. And, uh, you know, and then you see all these different adaptations that people have done because as they've, you know, got more advanced, they're going to have to hit more, you know, uh, higher kind of register type stuff opposed from like, oh, max reps at 90%. I got 18 reps. I'm like, yeah, oh. were you really training at fucking 90% if you got 18 reps? No. Yeah. And, and I totally agree. I think, I think there's a time and place for every way to do it. I think the only comps constant is you need to be focusing on structural weaknesses and posture. If you're focusing on those two major areas, you're going to be very, very resilient to injury. Your mileage is going to be lower, regardless of what style of training that you do. I find that you just have to be making sure that you're thinking, okay, I need to take things close to failure in order to have maximal hypertrophy at a certain rep range. I need to make sure that I have some sort of force development once the time is right. I need to make sure that I know how to strengthen. Those are all three very different mindsets and training style methodologies, but they cannot be ignored for very long. You have to have a balance of those, but the balance is individual based on the needs of the person at that time. So when um, I, I'd love to get into a little bit more of your training stuff. I mean, so you really kind of evolved into this, uh, um, you know, when you were going for the world record stuff, you were kind of using almost like a waving pyramid, uh, like a wave situation where you were going raw, kind of light gear, max gear, and kind of, you know, using the waves in that way. And then obviously you hit these world records and you still train pretty heavy and you still train pretty strong. How has your training changed now? And more importantly, like, are you still following that conjugate kind of West side temple you developed or what does it look like today for you? Yeah. I mean, it still has a skeleton of the, of its original mentality, but what I started to realize, um, the adaptation started when I flipped from equipped to raw and not because th they needed a different standard. I know everybody thinks you should train differently. My thought process stayed the same. But what I found was personally is once I got to a certain point where I was very close to all-time world records raw, that the squat was beating me down so bad, either because I was getting to be in my mid thirties and, or because I was ignoring GPP or physical fitness in a specific range, as far as generalization of weight training. Um, I was driving home from a meet. I had just hit the third highest total of all time raw in my first raw competition. This is pretty impressive. Uh, what year is this? What year? This is 2013. So, so you had trained basically equipped uh, for, you know, shit. I mean, since what, like, uh, you know, 2003, 2000. I mean, so you're over a well, decade equipped. So I'm well over a decade equipped with multiple world records. But you got to remember, too, even in the 90s, they had injuries, these suits and knee wraps. Um, but when you when I went to go raw, um, I, I squatted a little bit under 800. Keeping in mind, the world record was 822 by Scott Weech. And I'm looking at this and I finished a 600 raw at a competition and I'm thinking, shit, man, I can take the all-time world record raw. And I go to this meet just to kind of see where I'm at. I'm not maxing. I'm just figuring out what the battle plan is and getting some video down so I can see where my weaknesses are. Again, I'm applying my, my skeleton of training based on what I need at that time. It's not like I train this way. I will adapt any fucking thing I need to adapt to make myself get better. So what I, I'm driving home and my first inclination is I don't have that 600 bench after that 800 pound raw squat. It's gone. It went back down to like 574 and I'm driving home going, did I not get strong enough? What's, what's the problem? Right. 
And then I'm thinking, I'm, as I'm driving home, it's about a two and a half hour drive from this meet. And I'm like, wait a minute, maybe, just maybe I'm not fit enough. Maybe my conditioning is so low that after I squat, I'm too fucking tired to bench 600 pounds. Because you got to remember, you squat something close to a world record, you got two fucking hours and now you got to bench 600 pounds. That takes some conditioning. That's not just strength. And so backward about a year and a half, I go speak in Australia at the ASCA, which is their NSCA. Okay, so I'm speaking at this and um, I start I start listening to this lady who's getting a PhD and she's talking about pre-fatigue. And I'm like, wait a minute, pre-fatigue. I'm like, I don't do anything before I squat heavy, right? Not jack shit. And I'm thinking, well, hell. Well, at this time, I'm pretty good friends with Michael Hearn, which is pretty good friends with Flex Wheeler. And I message Flex Wheeler and I'm like, hey, Flex, just to get some different ideas from a completely different stratosphere. Flex Wheeler was one of the top bodybuilders in the, sure. in the late 90s, early 2000s, probably the one of the most symmetrical people ever. And he goes, you know, I always saw great results with getting stronger and bigger doing sets of 25. And I'm thinking, huh, son of a bitch. I don't ever do shit sets of 25. So I start thinking, well, what if I did, say, three or four sets of dumbbells of 25 before I bench? With, and then I'm thinking, well, that won't be enough work. Maybe some lat work and some tricep work. I figured those were probably my two weaknesses. So winning warm-up starts to get turned into my head. I'm starting to think a little bit more like a bodybuilder. Like, hey, look, you're raw now. You need more muscle tissue, but you also need more conditioning. And Flex Wheeler is telling you that he's getting more muscle mass doing sets of 25. And I know that if I keep the RPE or the percentage range around a conditioning amount, that maybe, just maybe, I can pre-fatigue before a max effort lift, and it will advance my training. But I knew that I couldn't go too heavy because if I went, say, did 100-pound dumbbells for four sets of 25, it's just going to kill my max effort session. So I'm thinking, well, shit, I'll just start off at 30s, right, and build myself up really slow. So eight months, I'm just doing this with the bench press now. It's just an experiment. No, I don't think in very many people have heard this story. So I do this for nine months. I show up at Raw Unity at 2014 against Andre Milanichev, Eric Lillibridge, and all these other great lifters of that time and even today. Shit, dude, whatever happened to that fucking dude, Eric Lillibridge? He moved to Australia and basically just fucks around now. Oh, my God, dude. That dude was like, oh, and then just disappeared. Yeah, sorry, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but I haven't no, heard that name in a long time. Great. I mean, Eric that dude was under 20 and like fucking a monster and then fucking poof. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? Training kind of linear periodization style. Ironic, huh? So yeah. um, so long story short, um, I'm trying to remember where I'm at. So, okay, so I'm, I'm training this way and I'm just experimenting with the bench press. I go to Raw Unity, Lilla Bridge and Milanachev and all of us are there. I break the all-time world record in the squat, which had nothing to do with winning warm-ups. But then my, my bench is back, and it's 6.06, and it's an empty fucking bar. So I take it down. I hear the press command. Boom. And I'm like, fuck. I probably had like 6.33 that day. And all I was doing was winning warm-ups with fucking like 30 to 50-pound dumbbells. But what I was doing was I was used to benching tired now. So I was doing all this warm-up shit. And now when I went to the bench, if I just rested five or six minutes, it's like my muscles re-energize and supercharge like a rechargeable battery. And now no matter what I did after squats, my bench was solid as a brick shithouse. So now I got one of the highest subtotals in human history and I'm under 300 pounds now. I'm leaner. I'm thicker. I got more muscle tissue. I mean, it's fucking serious, right? 
So now Lillibridge and Milanichev's coaches come up to me, what the fuck are you doing, right? How can you be this big and this strong? And I said, well, I've been experimenting with this pre-fatigue shit. And don't get me wrong. I don't know if they ever use it or not. Nah, they but, probably blew it off. And they were like, pre-fatiguing? Yeah, we haven't heard yeah. that shit since bodybuilding in the 80s. You remember? That yeah, was a he, big thing. Probably just taking more anadrol and blowing shit yeah. around. <laughs> yeah, they, so, they were like, ah, gram a train a day. We'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. Which I, yeah, no joke. So, um, so 2009 comes along and up it again. And, uh, or I'm sorry, 2015 comes along, up it again. 16, I go out to, um, I go out to, uh, uh, Chicago and Eddie Cohen's there, my old mentor and, you know, broke 75 world records in power thing. He's there to wrap my knees. I'm like, Hey man, we show up and help me out or not wrap my knees, but just help me out at the meet. And, uh, he's like, yeah, yeah. I go there and I break the all-time world record again. I squat 870 in a belt and I'm only weighing 290. So I'm down like 14 pounds, shed off all the inflammation. I'm highly conditioned, hit a 2204 total breaking the 2202. Dan Kovacs total. So now I'm the only lifter that I know of with all-time world records in not only gear multiple times, but all-time world records completely raw with no knee wraps multiple times. Well, so that was that was the that was the lifting uh, the lifting history really. So were were you still squatting off a box, or were you taking a lot of free lifts, yeah. or? Yeah. So what I would do is I would do um, again following this waving period. I started to realize as I was aging, you know, I was in my mid late thirties at that time that I couldn't free squat all the time. My hips would just get too beat up. Mm -hmm. So what I would do is I'd go high box, medium box, free squat, high box, medium box, free squat. So now I'm putting that weight on me all the time, but I'm doing it at different loading parameters to where my body's getting some restoration at different points. Um, which I thought was pretty smart for the time. And, uh, same thing with the deadlift and the bench press. And, um, but yeah, the, the training was just, I, I used whatever I needed to use at that time. What made me special was that I was able to look at what I needed and change my training accordingly. So if I would have needed linear periodization at that time, I'd have fucking done it. I didn't have an ego on how I was doing things. And I think that's what really started to happen at the end of the relationship with Louis Simmons. I think he figured out that he knew everything. And that, that's when you're really in trouble you know, with anything, because I don't know everything, but I have a lot of great ideas. And this is where I want to get into this, because I think people should have this not belief. If you believe something, you're going to fight somebody over it. If you have an idea, it's malleable. It's fluid. It can change. I use winning warmups and develop them because I fucking needed it at that time. But if somebody comes to me and used to play pro football and has conditioning out the wazoo and they're weak in their garbage, good form they might need dynamic effort max effort method more often if if maximal strength is their goal so what you have to start understanding is what i like about conjugate system is all an ability to adapt to what you need at that time but it's also following biological rules that are cannot be ignored no i mean it, i mean dude uh and, and at the end of the day i mean I, I think all too many times people have all these uh, ideas and this, and this is what I believe in. And they throw the fucking stake in the ground. But the problem is, is a lot of people don't have the end result. And you're like, Hey, I did this and I saw this and this was the result. And I think a lot of times what you're talking about is people get stuck within these, like, uh, you know, these are the pillars upon which my home is built opposed from being more of like a process kind of a, uh, Hey, like, here's my end goal. Like if, you know, if my goal is to, you know, live in this home for a hundred years, I'm going to build it in such a way opposed from like, no, 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 this is the way to build a home just for an yeah. analogy. 
And when yeah. we and we see this all the time with cars, right? Like, hey, this is how this guy builds this. But at the end of the day, if your if your goal is performance and to get down the racetrack as fast as possible, you will you will take any means necessary. And you see people like uh, yeah. people went to bigger cubic engines, uh, they went to you know nitrous kits, and then everybody got into turbos and they got into smaller motors, and then they figured out suspension and lighter. I mean, you start kind of making tweaks because at the end of the day, from going from point A to point B and as quick as possible is the end goal. And I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, well, if not cut you off, no, but, no, but, but like, and I think, I think with Louie and I think what you ran into is, uh, I think, you know, uh, towards the end, it was more about the glory of West side and the system than it was maybe the end goal. Yeah. And the other thing I think you want to add to that, and I, I, I try to tell people to not stress this enough. It's not only about, did you get down the track faster? Did you get down the track faster and your fucking car held together? See, yeah. the thing of it is, is you might be able to make one fucking run and be a badass motherfucker one time, but can you do it 50 times and not break? And that's what we should be looking for, because at the end of the day, let's look at, I mean, I get it, pro football, you've been there. If you want to train stupid to run a little bit faster to make 20 more million dollars, and then you're going to fuck your knee up, go do it. But why would you do that for a fucking medal? Why would you do that? Because you're going to be listening a website for six months and then two weeks, nobody gives a fuck. Like, don't train like an idiot to have a goal that doesn't make you any money and substantiate you for the rest of your life. That's what I can't understand is like powerlifting, as much as I treat it as a lifestyle, it's a fucking hobby. You're not going to win. I've made $20,000 in prize money on powerlifting, and I was one of the greatest ones of my generation. Why would you train like an idiot and blow your knees out and hurt your back when I can go work on a car right now for 10 hours all day and have all these records and all this muscle mass? And I'm not paying paying for it with joint pain and all these issues that all these other guys have training like a fucking idiot. That's well, what I can't. What uh, the, you know? It, well, I mean, not even training like idiots. I mean, the uh, like obviously the fucking training. Uh, you know, people are all over the map. But the one that always blew me away was just the amount of drugs. You're like, dude, uh, like the you know the idea of like, hey, you know, uh, a little bit more of this or a ton of this, and it's like. You start, and uh, I'm I'm super naive with all this stuff, but like just hearing these guys talk, I'm like, I don't even know what the fuck half of what y'all just said. Yeah, and, well, uh, well, let me explain about drugs. And I I've been there, and I've had. To, I'm not going to blow smoke up anybody's ass. I've had to take him to be what I was. But here's what I want you to understand: I was a two thousand pound raw totaler as a junior lifter before I touched anything. So you, if you don't, if you're right, like here's the deal. Drugs will not turn you into Arnold Schwarzenegger. How many people do we know, all of us sitting at this table, that have taken exorbitant amounts of steroids and they never get 20-inch arms? You still got to have the fucking genetics, number one. Number two, I have never seen drugs make somebody more than 10% stronger. Now, where do you want that 10%? If you're a 200-pound bencher, are you going to take a shitload of drugs to bench press 220? Or if you're a 600-pound bencher, are you going to take a shitload of drugs to bench 660? That might be something that is, in my opinion, a little weighable. But if you don't piece of work in and you're not already genetically gifted and have the work ethic, the drugs don't fix any of that. All they do is compound the issue and allow you to train more like a fucking idiot. And then you're just more injured at the end of the day because now you've built a base on sand instead of a base on concrete. Yeah. No, I mean, it makes total sense, dude. It, uh, it just blew me away too, especially with powerlifting. Like you said, dude, there's no money in it. I mean, you're basically no. in a, uh, in a hotel ballroom lifting with a bunch of other guys. I mean, you're basically looking for the admiration of the people you train with. And, um, it's yeah. Um, yeah, it blew me away.
to quote Bob Wellborn, holding your fan club meeting in the phone booth. <laughs> so my dad, uh, my uh, my dad was super smart and uh, extremely condescending. He was a trial attorney for like 50 years, you know, graduated high school, at like 16, put himself through law school, like graduated college at 19, put himself through law school at like 21, 22. And uh, he was a fucking smart ass. And I remember he told me once he was like, you never want to hold your, uh, what do you You never want to hold your fan club meetings in a phone booth, which basically means like, if you're your biggest fan, you got a fucking serious problem. And, uh, you know, that's something well, that's I, probably- yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, and, and, and you see it within I, social media, these guys, oh. like, uh, everybody's a fucking King Kong. Everybody's a, you know, fucking black belt in jujitsu and a, you know, Olympic gold medal. I mean, everybody's a fucking superhero. And I'm like, dude, I played in the NFL. I saw, I saw, I, I worked with superheroes and there ain't that many of them. No. And you know, the thing of it is, is it's, it's so tough because you don't want the kids and the newer generation to make the same mistakes that the old ones did. You don't want somebody to, you know, it, it, it's just, it's sad because, you know, at the end of the day, I, you know, I'm, I'm upset that Louis Simmons and I never truly got to mend things, even though he's, you probably seen me post, he sent me a book and wrote in it that he was my friend and, that was kind of shitty, you know, I mean, sad for me, but the big thing is, is I tried to reach out to him a couple months ago before he passed and I never got to hear back from him probably because he, he gets a lot of messages the same as I do. But, you know, the, the big thing is, is it's going to be sad because he worked his whole life to make that West side barbell record board, something special. And guess what? In one year, nobody fucking cares. And how many bridges did he burn and how many people did he get pissed off for the way he acted or he did? And I'm not saying we're all perfect. We all have our demons and we all, do things that aren't right. But my point is, is like, it's fucking powerlifting, man. Like, you know, I mean, we get so caught up in our own little, our own little bubble, you know, that it's, it's so difficult. And I try to get this new generation to understand that because just because it's more popular on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and whatever, it still doesn't mean shit. Yeah. I did see a post you shared uh, following Lewing's passing where you were nervous in the direction of strength as a whole. So yes. think of this as an opportunity with our viewership. What can you offer to now write that ship? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tall order. And it's not just Louis Simmons. You know, we lost Berkashansky in the last couple of years. Charles Poliquin's gone in 2018. Uh, we just lost Judd Logan, which was an, a four time Olympian here for Ashland that changed strength conditioning and track and field, in my opinion, to almost everybody. Um, we've lost so many pioneers at a young age. Louis, I mean, was close to 80 and we can't, you know, you take steroids for 50 years, you roll the dice. But <laughs> he, he told me he took a hit of Diana ball every day for 50 years. Fucking, I thought Louis Simmons was going to fucking die two years after I left in 2007. I mean, Dude. I slept in hotels rooms with him. He can't, he couldn't sleep not sitting up because he got trait. Right. So he went in for a knee surgery or something in like 86 they gave him the wrong anesthesia. It killed him on the table. They brought him back and they they intubated him. And ever since then, he had such horrible sleep apnea. He never, he never slept more than a couple hours a night. And that you could see the health problems just starting to stir in his early 60s. And I was thinking when I left, man, he's done in like two years. I can't believe he lived another 13. Uh, but what I'm getting at is that we have so many, we, we see new lifters. We even see football players getting faster and getting bigger and stronger, but nobody's learning anything. And, you know, the generation of Louis and Verkashansky and Zatsiorski and all these guys that are going to be gone, if not gone already, 
that really wanted to study and have a passion of how it got better. But they were also willing to put their own ass on the line to learn it, right? Verkashansky was a hellacious track athlete in his day. I give all the respect for Louis Simmons. He put his body through hell to learn how to train smart. All these fucking guys now, they either are meatheads with no education and they don't want to teach anybody or they want to sell some cookie cutter bullshit or we got a PhD that's never lifted shit that's not going to put his own body through the ringer to figure out what works. So now we got this huge gap of guys that are not only heavily educated, but also insanely strong and work through their own adversity to make themselves amazing coaches when their physical time is up. That was my whole point to it, right? There's, I'm not saying that going to school and getting a PhD is wrong. And I'm not saying just being a meathead is wrong, but when you're trying to make the next generation better and pass a torch, you've got to have both because there are certain things that academia is never going to learn. And there are certain things meatheads are never going to learn. And until both of those two are combined at a high level, we're not going to have that new generation because I feel in my personal opinion, I'm one of the few of this generation that has both. Right. I mean, the only other guy before Louie that had it was Fred Hatfield, you know, and that's, it's just sad because I can only count on a hand on one hand of the guys that I would call and ask training advice to right now. Whereas 15 years ago, I had 20. And we spoke in person about you had an opportunity when you were in college to go down and intern, like how important is for that as maybe athletes to help other athletes to start to understand, Hey, there's something to coaching. What are my coaches talking about to not just stand up and execute why are we having to do this sets reps these movements so the value of that internship that's what i want to pull out well it's i think i think a bigger a bigger question or concern is why are colleges getting rid of graduate assistants that yeah it's money i mean but, but what's crazy is that the schools have have never had more money for this stuff where the and fuck is this money yeah that's it's well I, uh, yeah I'm, I'm with case, you. Case in point, Ball State University, I love dearly. That's my university. It was the number one exercise science school with Dr. Kramer and Voigt there in the world at the time. Dr. Trappy, Dr. Costell. If you don't know these guys' names, you don't belong in exercise science in any way, shape, way, or form. Now you drive through campus and you got these $20 million, $50 million buildings and no fucking good professors. They don't give a fucking shit about education it's all about presence right how many weight rooms have all three of us walked into and go shit they got a hundred million dollars in this weight room with a fifty dollar an hour strength coach yep and zero dollar an hour strength coaches yeah and then i mean shit they they got one uh like one head guy and he might have like one or two like you know poorly paid assistants and then uh yeah five for football and then maybe and yeah and then like a whole bunch of assistants interns that are basically free and i'm like and the fucking head football coach is making $10 million a year. I'm like, wait a minute. And what's wild, and you you know this, I mean, I'll, I'll be the first to tell you, uh, when you play in college, especially in the NFL, you have more interaction with your strength coach on a daily basis than you do with your, even your position coach, let alone a head coach. Yep. I mean, they're shit, in college, it's even more. Yeah, they're not out recruiting and trying to do all the other bullshit it takes to stay on top of whatever they're trying to stay on top of. The strength coach is usually the one that should give a shit about player development. You know, and that's why when you see the pros, when they go to pro teams, you know this, guys going to pro teams and they think, oh, it'd be cool to be a pro strength coach. You're a paid babysitter. And those guys, yeah. whatever they did in college, that's what they want to still keep doing. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll tell you a little story. Um, uh, when I went to Cal, uh, we had a strength coach named Eric Hone. We did kind of like a standard 
kind of powerlifting, you know, five, sevens, threes, kind of, you know, a little bit of bodybuilding, a little bit of like, you know, power cleans, whatnot. And uh, they fired him. And then we brought in a guy named Todd Rice that was 100% Olympic lifting, snatch clean and jerk, front squat. We weren't allowed to bench press. Uh, we actually had to go down to the uh, RFC, which was our rec center, to bench press because he wouldn't let us bench in there. And then it was, uh, uh, you know, snatch clean and jerk, push press, hey, front squat. Hey, and, let uh, me get fucking guy didn't look like he lifted weights. Uh, no, no, he he was, you know, fairly well put together. Um, okay. And he was, you know, uh, what was wild is, uh, and then we got into, you know, everything was about, you know, overspeed, plyometrics. You know, we did a ton of jumping. Fuck, dude, I front squatted five. I, I squatted, I squatted 6'10 when I was 19. And I benched 500 when I was 22. And oh, yeah. uh, and then I front squatted like 500, I think, for a triple. And I ver- uh, I think I verted like 32, 33 inches. And um, shit, everybody got stronger. Fucking, it was like the perfect program at the right time, just because it was such a different, you know, than yeah. what we we'd been doing. Then I show yeah. up my rookie year to the NFL, and it's uh, hammer strength, one set to failure, high intensity. So there was like twenty machines in a row, and like there were there were three rows, one, two, three. You walk in, and on the board there'd be a one. You fucking go down the row, one set to failure on every machine, and just fucking blast through. And I remember I got done, went back, and I got in line again because it only takes like twelve to fifteen minutes. And they were like, you already went through. I'm like, how many sets? Like, how many times are we going to go through this? And they're like, one. And I'm like, no, nah, fuck that. So I ended up going through like three times. Uh-huh. And then uh, and then that first offseason, I stayed there and trained. And then I went into my second year and I played. And they were like, hey, when are you coming back? And I'm like, I'm not. Uh, if I continue to do this, because my first year I actually got stronger just because it was such a different, you know, stimulus than what I'd done in the past. Did you ever think about maybe you were, you were comp- super compensating from all the other years yeah. you put in? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it made total sense. And I, I, I liked it for like an in-season training model, you know, like we would sure. do it for like maybe like one or two days a week and then free weights on the other days. But I actually left and never trained, uh, had one off season with the team. And they always asked me, and I'm like, because if I continue to do this, I'm just going to play myself out of the NFL. So I trained down in Florida with a guy named Rafael Ruiz and would show yeah. up every year and they'd be like, Oh, you know, you, you know, these guys made a hundred percent of their workouts. You didn't make one. And I'd be like, great. Let's strap it up. Very first day, let's do all the testing. And I would fucking smash everybody. And uh, because I, you know, like like the training we had done was specific to what, I mean, I, I knew what I needed. I wasn't a child and I was kind of steeped in this stuff. And yeah. I just remember that like one set to failure, I was so excited that dudes were going to do that in the off season. I'm like, God, I hope you show up and fucking train for 20 minutes, run a couple fucking 20s and 30s and get the fuck out of there because I'm going to come back and smash you day one. And I That's did. I always I- came back and went all, you know, won all the conditioning tests you know, set every record on everything every fucking time. And it's yeah. like, dude, I, yeah. I mean, like, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm like, dude, the, like, this is not going to develop you into the player you need to be. If you're already the player, this is just going to keep you at the status quo. But if you're looking to actually increase and, and get better, this isn't the place to do it. Yeah, that's what people don't understand. When you go to the pros, they're, they're, they are buying you for your ability. They're not buying you to make you something. Yeah. If you're not well, already that, if you go to the pros, you're not going to be that. They're just going to get rid of you. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you can't play, like I remember I got drafted. I was the second pick in the fourth round. Uh, I showed up to minicamp, and I was like the third string right tackle or left tackle. I can't remember. Um, I played pretty well. I came back for the OTAs, and I remember I walked in, and there was all these empty lockers near mine. And I'm like, hey, where did all those old guys go? And they're like, oh, we cut them. I'm like, why? And they're like, you're going to start at right tackle. And I was like, I'm a fourth-round draft pick. They're like, yeah, we drafted you to start. And I remember thinking like, well, I'm a fourth round draft pick. You know, I might get a you know chance to be a backup for a little bit and play myself into a role. 
No, they're like, hey, if you can't play today, you're not playing in the NFL. Dang, that's crazy. Uh, Matt, speak to you how you operate with athletes now. A lot of tactical. We met one professional that was in there. Do you aim to educate? So not only find weaknesses, what they're good at, give them a program, but do you aim to educate so they can protect themselves when they do leave and go with other coaches? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the big thing with with tactical is you have to make motor patterns instinctive. So that's why it's so important for consistency. I mean, in anything you do, but especially tactical, because, you know, you go put all your fire gear on, you go run into a house and have to save somebody. You don't have time to think about foot positioning and where, you know, where your posture's at. But if it's ingrained in your head every 72 hours, then the chances of you doing something perfect are much, much higher. So for me, it's all about consistency and motor patterns and trying to develop proper motor patterns. In my personal opinion, I feel that motor patterns are developed due to a lack of imbalance of muscle groups. So if you have a quadricep to hamstring ratio balance, your knee is going to work and function better or correctly. If you have a lower back to abdominal or TVA um, balance, as far as, you know, basically just abdominal muscles for the layman, if those abs and your lower back are developed and they function correctly, you're probably going to move correctly. If your glutes function correctly, you're probably going to do that correctly. So the point is, is constant reinforcement of proper motor patterns, reducing weak links, enforcing the areas that I feel are neglected and or deficient. You're always working towards those areas. And that doesn't matter if it's a fucking athlete, a tactical guy, or a general pop person like I got at Riker. You train people that way in order for them to have more resiliency and a better chance for a better motor pattern. And with with the, the professionals, like, are, are you sought out at this point? Is it dudes flying? I mean, why else would you go to Columbus, in my opinion? But, <laughs> burn. just kidding. Uh, I, I, well, he's not from Columbus. He's from beautiful Indiana. Oh, um, shit. Well, I've lived here, like, <laughs> and claim Columbus now. Yeah. Well, when dudes travel to you, is it uh, for a week? Is it three weeks? Is it one day? And they, they seek you out for your expertise in certain lifts? It's, it's all over the board. You'd be surprised. I mean, we get interns for 12 to 15 weeks. Um, we get pro athletes like what you saw come from anywhere from one day to multiple weeks. We get, um, I got clients, lawyers, and doctors that fly in from Florida once a month, and we basically polish them up. But now the nice thing is with the, the advent of, um, you know, the internet, we can do so much on online coaching. We got 130 clients some pro athletes, some just general population and everything in between. And now we have five online coaches. So, you know, all of them have master's degrees. Some of them have played in pro football. Wade, my old mentor and boss at Ball State, is now I'm his boss as a strength, as the online coaching. But as far as he started the weight program at Ball State, and he has his master's CSCC and has been in strength conditioning since 1982. So in reality, there's no other – people I'd rather have on my team, but it took me 10 years to develop this situation where I feel I have all these people in place to basically I can turn my head and go focus on, you know, I was, I was actually talking about this today with the guy that the head guy that runs Riker. He said, you know, you got this glass and you got stones, pebbles, and sand. And if you put all the stones in first, you can't fill it with sand or pebbles. You have to do everything kind of equally to fill it up as much as you can. And that's what I've tried to do with everything. Meaning, don't you want to focus on big stuff and the little stuff and the small stuff will kind of play itself out. It's all getting the right pieces in the right time. So 
Um, you know, but you also find it's a budgeting thing, right? I mean, not everybody can spend $200, $500 a month on online coaching or any of these other things. So we try the best we can to have some like train heroic apps for tactical and conjugate. So people are training smarter with maybe less, you know, interaction that we can have just based on financial, you know, hours that we have in the day. So we're just trying to put out as many products as we can. I feel not only because I've looked at other manuals, but I have a lot of pride in what I do. If you look at a lot of the power building and power lifting and hypertrophy manuals that we put out, I don't know that anybody's put out programs like I have with the amount of data research and development that we have. I mean, there is nothing on the website that I haven't taken at least 20 people through and seen results. And, and I'm saying minimum, usually it's hundreds and put that stuff through the grinder to see if it works. So it's one of those things where we just try to help as many as we can based on what the budget that we have, you know, obviously pro athletes have a different budget. Lawyers and doctors have a different budget than some guy work in construction. So um, what we have found in the, in the job is, you know, contracts with fire departments and townships and car dealerships that have a, a large overhead, but they're also spending a lot of money on insurance premiums. You know, the biggest thing that helps us is the rising cost of medical stuff, right? Like, you know, if you can get a little bit stronger, and a little bit more resilient and maybe get a knee strain instead of a knee replacement, you just save somebody a couple hundred thousand dollars. And that's where I think, you know, really showing that level of expertise and ability is next generation. Because what you start seeing is you can save a company. I mean, I have the data, which I can send you guys for the thing. But from 2009 to 2017, one of my fire departments they were spending $600,000 a year in insurance premiums. And in 2017, we're spending a hundred thousand. That's, and the average age went up. So it wasn't like we got a bunch of old guys out, a bunch of new guys in, in 10 years, the average age went from 41 to 44. And the, in, the injury rates dropped so much that they were saving $500,000 a year. Like that's big shit. It's a lot of equipment. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, uh, you know, Rob Wolf had that uh, retention deal, a uh, risk retention deal in Reno where they went in and uh, the city of Reno came in and they basically implemented, uh, you know, kind of a, a whole food paleo S diet, a little bit of strength training, you know, a little bit of like mobility work. And I think they saved the city of Reno like $21 million in one year just in terms of insurance premiums, injuries, being at like statins, yeah. drugs. I mean, it was uh, it, like, like it was, I remember when Rob came and presented the model, he was like, holy shit, dude, this thing's going to go to the moon. And the problem was nobody was really fucking interested in it because it was just uncovering problems that were systemic within this thing. You know, University of Harvard or Yale, it was a big school, came out with for every dollar spent on a wellness program on the long term, it saves the department or township $17. So there's a, what, 1700% return, you know, where you're just like, holy shit, right? But the problem is, is a lot of people that work their way up into those say chief levels or mayor levels or whatever, they're not fitness people. No. So to a long-term investment, just like training smart is a long-term investment. Everybody wants short-term results. They don't want this long-term. So when I go into these fire departments and in Ford, they go, you know, we'd like to pay you this, but what's going to be our return? I said, I will start making you money in five years. Well, if they start backing away going five years, I'm like, I'm not your guy. I'm out of here. Because that shows me you don't have the right mindset. It's like somebody mm -hmm. coming to you and say, hey, I want to play pro football. And you're like, well, I might be able to get you fast. I'm just, I'm just saying, let's just say genetics are out of the way. 
and they say, Hey, it's going to take you five years to get strong enough and big enough to play. And they're like, well, I wanted this in 60 days. Get the mm-hmm. fuck out of here. Yeah. <laughs> With that, that whole corporate wellness. Yeah. It's, it's, it's uh, I mean, behavior, we, man, we've done it uh, on, on big scales. I mean, we try to implement, uh, you know, corporate performance programs. And it's always met with like the bean counters where it's like, you know, do we want to, you know, hire more people? Do we want to do this? And it's just, it's really fascinating how uh, people don't put this stuff at the, at the forefront. Like, you know, I mean, shit, man, like the, uh, the age old, like uh, people don't stop lifting weights because they get old, you know, they stop lift or they stop lifting weights and get old. It's kind of a deal where, you know, shit, well, I still want to bang weights and train into my fucking seventies and eighties and hopefully, yeah, I, uh, uh, you know, I go and have a great training session, go lay down and fucking die and you know, they wheel me away what, what with this attacking more. Sorry. That's why I started attacking more fire departments is because when a fire chief comes in, right. I try to go in and attack it immediately because a fire chief is probably going to stay in charge for about 10 years, right? They're not going to be a pro strength coach. It's going to be there one, two, maybe three seasons. They're not going to get a lot of, they're not going to get a lot of rotation of guys. You know, you might say you got 75 firemen in a township, they might only rotate maybe six or eight of those in five years. So now I got guys in my grasp for a long period of time. And then once you have data like what I got, where you can show a 10 year slope of saving money. Now, if you got a guy that's there long-term, now you can sell a long-term program. But if you're going to attack and people that are trying to jump around and, you know, make big strides in short times, you're never going to have a wellness program that's going to do jack shit because they're never going to do it. Yeah, getting the the wellness program signed off on is half the battle. Sure. So now, what what are some phases of introducing this program that you found more successful, and if any problems you first ran into, is it a benefit? Well, is it a benefit for Matt to go in there first day, or is it a matter of empowering the administrators to then lead the program? It's a tough one. I think I think you're talking about a coin flip of luck. I mean. You have to have, you know, right now it seems like all the dominoes are falling on the table for me because I've had this long-term data. I have enough ability to talk to people. And I'm also the stature. People are like, hey, this guy lives the shit. You know what I mean? He's not just blowing smoke up my ass. But the big thing is you got to have a little bit of luck. You got to have a little bit of experience and you got to show what you've done in the past. You know, if I, if I show my longest fire department, which I've had for 16 years, and you're showing, you know, nearly a half a million dollars a year savings. Hey, the ball's on their court now. You know what I mean? I mean, but see, the problem is most people come in and go, hey, this is going to make you guys a lot better and you're going to be a lot healthier. Well, where's your data? Well, you know, you don't have it, you know, so that you, you got to have the data to do it. You got to have also the smarts to do it. And you got to be able to actually do it. Meaning like just because I have data that resistance training program helped someone reduce injuries doesn't mean you're going to adopt the same program that I use. I mean, we do a lot of traction-based movements, a lot of reverse hypers, a lot of belt squats. It's not your traditional meat-grinding, powerlifting, Chico style of squatting three times a week. You're not going to fix – you might get somebody stronger in the short term. You're not going to fix jack shit with injuries, yeah. right? Yeah. But, well, what's the one that people uh, – yeah, you said Boris Chico, but what was the uh, those stupid fucking squat everyday programs that people love to do? Uh, and and then all of a sudden their squat goes up like 5%. They're like, yeah, I got stronger, but every other lift and they fight. Well, God, what was that called? Uh, Everything well, works. Yeah, Corey. No, no, no. They had like a, uh, the Chico programs where it was basically like you squat every single day and it's all you do. And people are like, oh, but I got 5% stronger. And I'm like, ah. Uh, every yeah. ounce counts, John. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I, um, 
stronger for 75% joint tear down. Yeah. Great idea. Oh, and, and then the other part too is uh, just because you got stronger doesn't mean that like you didn't leave strength on the table. I mean, you know, like I, I like I hear people all the time like, oh, I added, you know, three pounds to my bench. I'm like, fuck, dude. Uh, <laughs> now, now I get 5% stronger. I take a fucking deload. If I'm recovered, I'm going to be 5% stronger. I, it's so it's so amazing to me that, you know, that the problem that I feel and I'm not being a dick to any of the listeners or even myself. Lifting tends to attract people that have a very low education and they don't have a long-term thought process. It's all about these quick fix bullshit. And, you know, the, the entire industry is built on it. And that's the biggest problem that we face today. And that's what I talked about with this. I'm in, I'm very nervous for the future of strength training. Yeah. We run trainer road programs, different programs, reverse engineer from a goal and work in deload weeks. We've done Amazing work, in my opinion, of rebranding. I actually call them reloads. Exactly. So I hated the term deload because uh, whenever we were having the train heroic programs and people would come in during the deload, they would be like up in arms. And I'd be like, yeah. hey, man, it's team training. You got to jump in. Just fucking hang out for a week and fucking you'll be fine. So I actually yeah. changed it to reloads and I'll constantly be like, hey, man, just like I emptied my fucking magazine and I got to put it in a magazine, you got to reload. Occasionally, yeah. unless you're in a fucking movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger where all of a sudden they're doing like, you know, a thousand round dumps without reloading. I'm like, you got to have a reload. And all it does is help me get back into position, allow for a little super mm -hmm. compensation. So take a deep fucking breath and just hang on for a fucking week. And yeah. uh, man, like the. Um, well, if, if. Well, like, yeah. I mean, think about how long it took if you to the get viewers strong. and listen. Like I, I was saying, Dude, how long? Like, yeah, it, it was 20 years of a constant fucking grind. And then people, you know, and you see this within the programs. Oh, I did that program for six weeks and I don't think I got as strong as I should. And I'm like, well, what were you expecting in six weeks? It's not like I'm going to, yeah, in I six mean, weeks, you're going to become better looking two inches taller and grow three inches on your, you know, on your fucking Johnson. I mean, Jesus yeah, Christ. Anybody, if anybody can take anything listening from what I have to say, it's not what you can do. It's what you can recover <laughs> And if you're not building in recovery, you're building in devastation, either short or long term. You have to have it. And, you know, even the Eastern Germans and Soviets knew it and build in every four weeks, build in deloads and drop percentages to let the body adjust. Listen to the word adjust to the training. You don't get stronger when you train. You get stronger when you adapt and adjust to the training. Yeah. Final note on the tactical population I have is. Working in running. So I don't know if the fire departments have conditioning tests, quote unquote, but I know the army does. Yeah. So now how do you work that in? Do you have some army training for their specific test or is yeah. it just still general across the board or excuse me, specific for their demands across the board and then they go and test? So what we found in this is in the tactical manual, but we found is that anything over running nine miles a week was actually detrimental. It didn't help. Because what you have to understand, one big thing you need to understand, and everybody listen to this, if you're a fireman or military, is you don't run in shorts and tennis shoes in the real world. You run in 70 pounds of fucking gear, and that takes strength. So if you're using all this high-impactive running to get better, you're wasting your time because a fireman doesn't run. You can't. Not with all that shit on so what you have to understand is that, you know, if you're in all your body armor or you're in all your fire retardant gear and your bottle and your mask and everything, you need to be very strong and have a high level of anaerobic capacity, not aerobic capacity. I find that people that can do hard things 
for a minimal amount of time have no problem doing things that are easy for a long period of time, sure. i.e. swing a 50-pound kettlebell for five minutes straight, and I'll bet you you can run two miles pretty good, better than most of the Army. Yeah, no, and, and the other one we ran into, and we used a ton in our within our tactical programs, is sprinting. It takes a high level of neurological efficiency and also eccentric strength and power to be able to sprint. And I find that the majority of people, once they put a little bit of sprinting in there, all of a sudden now the capacity increases and we don't have to fucking kick their dick in on the other side as much. I know, but, but people can't let go. And what I yeah. find is with the military, people come to me for training. Well, I've already been running 20 miles a week. So now I don't, I know they don't need to run anymore. Yeah. So it's not like they don't know to run. That's the first thing a dumbass does to get ready. <laughs> yeah. run, and run. Well, and then they realize, oh shit, I got to be in 80 pounds of gear. Where if you're airborne, a hundred pounds of gear. Yeah. And you, you show me that that tennis shoe running did jack shit. When you go under that kind of load, it did zero. Well, and the other one too, is a lot of those guys are on profile and we were running into this when, um, yep. you know, because, uh, you know, their entire PT test is based on extension and flexion for fucking sit-ups. And I'm like, dude, every one of these guys have some sciatic, some back injury. I'm like, well, dude, you guys are doing dynamic fucking flexion extension, uh, ad nauseum. <laughs> and you think that somehow that's going to fucking pay dividends. And then you wonder why all your backs are fucked up and your shoulders are fucked up. And then you guys yep. go out for a ton of long runs. You overload the mileage, you get stress fractures, injuries. I mean, the amount of shit that we saw within just the profiles for the 18th Airborne Corps, it was like, dude, if you get rid of the fucking sit-up and you get rid of all this bullshit mileage and you actually teach them strength training, all of a sudden your you know, your 30% non-deployable rate will go down to fucking 2%. Yeah. When we were at 3rd Battalion Rangers, those guys ran, ran, ran like you wouldn't believe. And they were having all kinds of injuries. And I went down there in 2006 and I was there in 2009. And as, as a contractor, and I would show up about once a month, check up, help them. And General Anderson was like, what do we need to fix this? I said, cut the running down 60% up the lifting 60%. They did it, and their injury rates dropped 33% in a year and a half, saving them $3 million. I'm like, I can't understand why you guys don't understand this. Like, But, but here it is. It's just, in my opinion, running in the military and in the fire departments, if they're trained in that way, it's pure – 100% laziness. You can tell anybody to go run a mile and back and you don't have to say shit. But when you teach somebody how to move correctly and utilize weight training correctly, you got to be smart. You got to have a lot of understanding of posture and muscle weaknesses. And you got to apply those things. And it's a pure sense of laziness. So as soon as somebody starts talking to me, I'm not saying you, but as soon as somebody starts talking to me about running shit, you know, the average person, I start understanding where their mindset is. And I know this is going to be an uphill battle. Well, uh, I like to talk about sprinting because yeah. uh, it's extremely hard to sprint if you're weak. And, uh, dude, oh. it's it's a phenomenal strength builder. I mean, it's it's funny, man. Within our programs, dude, I get like at least once a month, somebody will fucking push back. Oh, I don't know if this is a muff, uh, uh, like mileage of running. On hammer. And, and then, you know, on hammer. And then dudes will jump in and be like, uh, I have fucking maxed out every PT test I've ever done, gone through selection, whatever, and I run less miles. And it's like because, man, like the sprinting component, lifting heavy weights, a little bit of short capacity, a ton of trunk work so we can work on maintaining stability and posture and position. And then fucking give them like one day a week to go out and fucking burn it down. And um, the other thing, uh, you know, and I'm sure when you were mentioning people that passed away, um, you know, Charlie Francis, who, you know, I worked with pretty early in my NFL career. Um you know, that type of like intensity in terms of like, you know, sprinting, tempo runs and being able to understand mileage and, you know, med balls, GPP and all the other stuff. I mean, so, shit, man, that stuff all fucking pays dividends. Not cutting you off, but he he is so under underestimated 
underutilized. That dude was a fucking genius. Not not a power athlete. I mean, dude, I fucking acquired uh, so, reading. Yeah. So uh, just the story. When I came in the NFL, uh, I came in to start as a rookie, and I ruptured my patellar tendon my rookie year. So all of a sudden, I went into surgery. Pretty much your fucking career is finished. And uh, I had been rehabbing, and I wasn't making good gains. Uh, Mauro De Pasquale, uh, who was doing all my diet stuff, who I got hooked up with, Mauro introduced me to Charles Palkwin. And so I get on the phone with Palkwin. All he wanted to do is tell me all the drugs I wasn't taking. And then he mm-hmm. basically gave me like a list of drugs I needed to go find. <laughs> and then once I found those, I could call him back. I didn't know what the fuck this shit was. So I call uh, um, uh, Mauro back. And I'm like, hey, yeah. uh, uh, Palkwin gave me this list of shit. And he's like, let me put you in touch with Charlie Francis. And then that's how I got to, in touch with Charlie. And he, he hooked me up with EMS. We started talking about all this other training stuff. And uh, that was the huge catalyst, I think, that helped me yeah. rebound and come back. And I started uh, 16 games that next year. I think, and you're right. I think there was there was a lot of things. I think Charles Baldwin had a lot of great ideas with diet, had a lot of great ideas. We had a lot of, we did seminars together that you probably had heard of back in 16, 17. We went to Prague, Amsterdam. And I started to notice he had immense knowledge in certain areas and very, very, uh, we had a lot of disagreements on training shit. Like he was telling me about the drugs and stuff like that. And I'm thinking that is a small percentage of what you actually need. But the problem with Poliquin was, and I'm not talking shit cause he's dead, but the problem with Poliquin was, is that he came from a bodybuilding background yeah. and everything he knew about weight training was bodybuilding background, not performance-based background where I feel my pedigree from Louis Simmons was much more, much more integrated, which is crazy to say, because I don't say Poliquin doesn't know what he's doing. But if you look at loading parameters of how we trained at Louis Simmons and how I trained conjugate style, it was light years ahead of what Poliquin was doing. Yep. You know what I mean? But Paul, I learned a lot from him on inflammation, food types to stay away from. He had a lot of good qualities, uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the, uh, the level of, drug stuff that he was just like dude we're not trying to be ronnie coleman here yeah well, well when he but, uh, uh and i still remember he was like uh i, I didn't even know what fucking 18 i used gh was but i remember that was <laughs> on the list and i remember being like i ah, fuck i don't know but uh the where he fucking lost me was uh with actually programming timed concentric movements so yeah, when I, I was uh uh, when I was a young dude, uh, the old power lifter that I trained with, a guy named George Zangus, who invented the super suits and the wraps, marathon nutrition, we had a reverse hyper. He was buddies with Fred Hatfield. And so, you know, he would talk about compensatory acceleration, you know, be violent, try to break the fucking weights. When you, you know, lift these things, I want you to be so violent with the weights that people will come over you and say, dude, you're going to hurt yourself. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that idea of mechanical advantage increases, so to speed, was like, fucking paramount in my uh you know in my training early on and more importantly i believe was one of the reasons i got to go play a decade in the nfl because i was trying to fucking break people all the time and then all of a sudden when i get in with the Paulquin stuff and he's like two fucking three count concentric and i'm like dude concentric you move that motherfucker from point a to point b as violently and as fast as possible and at that point i was like i'm done agreed Agreed. we we had the same conversation in the first the first um seminar I ever did that he was speaking at and he let me come in for free and I had to take off of his back 275 on a fucking squat. I'm like, okay, I'm going to listen to your nutrition and I'm going to listen to supplementation. <laughs> you can shut the fuck up about weight training right now. Yeah. Cause I arm down and I'm like, my fucking forearm was bigger than a squat. I'm like, ah, I'm good. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, I dude. It's uh, uh, so when, uh, when I, I lived down in Tampa, 
uh, in the offseason training with this guy named Rafael Weez. And we had about 10 NFL players that showed up every day. And we had this fucking phenomenal training group. And like when you were talking about having like a crew of individuals, uh, I really think that like when you can put together a highly competitive group of individuals, it's the fucking moon. It's and moon. Uh, uh, one of the guys that was training with us brought David Boston in. And oh, yeah. he was Poliquin's fucking poster boy. Poliquin, or uh, David Boston shows up. He's wearing these fucking green cat eye contacts. You know, he's fucking like fucking huge chest, huge quads. Yeah. I mean, the dude's like 260. Uh, he didn't even make it through our fucking warm up, and the dude practically blew out his knee in Achilles when we went to go out and sprint and do any shit. I mean, the guy literally within an hour fucking disappeared, and uh, he, you know, and the hour before that, he, you know, was over there just fucking polishing Poliquin's knob and this and this. And I left there thinking, hey, was that that motherfucker that was trying to get me to take eighteen IUs of GH fucking five or six years ago? And at that I point, know. man, I was like, I'm good. Yeah, I think I think really the most powerful guy that Poliquin ever trained was Adam Nelson. Yeah. Uh, Adam Nelson was a fucking animal, but I, I am a hundred percent in agreement with you. Concentric is 100% as fast as you can fucking move. I have no problems with training eccentric tempos, but when you start talking concentric tempos, me and you are going to have a big fucking problem. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean the, uh, you know, the, the comment I use to people is, uh, the day that I start going for slow fucking concentrics is the day that I fucking find a nice bench to go sit on and fucking quit. You know, exactly. I mean, it doesn't make any fucking sense to me. And, no, not at all. Uh, you know, so much, you know, and dude, you've, you've seen this too, man. People, you know, die on the sword on this stuff. And you're like, man, I wouldn't do that fucking with my worst enemy, let alone this. But, you know, people buy into a system and now all of a sudden their system is really what they're pushing more so than saying, hey, what's the performance? And what's the outcome? And if David Boston was his greatest, you know, contribution to the NFL, Fuck, I wouldn't train with that guy. But then we had, you know, we're buddies with Adam Nelson, and Adam was telling me these like fucking superhero stories. And I'm like, dude, that's not at all what I saw coming out of these guys that train. Well, you know, the hard part is, I think I said, I mean, you know, you got to still have a handful of skeleton. We go back to, you know, most of your stuff needs to be ideas. You need a handful of core beliefs. Our core beliefs are you need to move concentric quick. And I think Charles could get evenly swayed by a lot of different things he would read or who he was around without actually looking at the context. And that can be a big, that can be a big problem for a lot of people. Right. So yeah, I remember that he came to do us. That's when we first met, I got this email out of the blue. It was Charles Poliquin. And I was doing a seminar in Colorado Springs. He lived in Monument at the time. And he's like, Hey, do you mind if I come down and listen to your seminar? So I start showing the class speed work and I got a double red band on there. It's hundred pounds of band, three chain on each side, which is 120 and chain. And 185 pounds bar weight, and I'm moving it at 1.16 meters per second. And Charles was like, there's no fucking way you can move it that fast. I'm like, fucking watch me. So I'm just like, pow, pow, pow. You know what I mean? And he's like, holy shit. And it was funny because he opened his mind. I think it almost, you ran into him in that bodybuilding idea. Because when we went and did seminars over in Prague and Amsterdam together, he goes, if I had to go back and do it, I'd have trained more like Matt Winning trained. Mm. So maybe he was learning. I don't know. Well, I mean, I mean, dude, if like you know, you reference Zadiskorsky. I mean, anybody that's read science and practice knows rate of force development, your ability to generate force. You know, I mean, there's directly related to bar velocity, and you know, you talk about accentuation phase with Fred Hatfield and the ability to be able to speed up eccentric accentuation phase into a concentric. I mean, that's really, uh, I think, what allowed me. I mean, you know, I know people kind of laugh when I tell them as an undersized white offensive lineman. you know, 300, a little over 300 pounds. 
the reason I was able to hit and basically play at such a high level and beat up dudes bigger than me was because I understood that type of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and I understood, you know, the ability to generate force and that speed was most important. And that, oh, you know, yeah. you, you, you get off the ball and fucking hit a dude as hard as you can. I mean, it just, it makes sense to me and allowed me to do the job. And when you try to explain it to people, mm-hmm. it's like, man, like, you know, if, if everything's equal and I'm moving faster than you, I'm going to fucking knock you in your ass. Well, and the reason it's hard to explain it to people because it's not new and it's not sexy. And that's why it's hard to sell it. You know what I mean? Amen. Isn't that the truth? I mean, uh, the day that all of a sudden you can't sell the basics because they're not sexy, I don't know if there's a fucking place for me anymore. I, I know. And I, unfortunately, I feel we're kind of going that direction. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I mean, you you know, you uh, text showed me your post, um, the idea that you were nervous for strength training and he brought it up. But I feel like uh, the problem is, and I think, like, you know, and I fucking hate being that fucking crotchety fucking dude that's like, we're on the internet. But I think the problem is, is that there's no longer a qualification to push information. It's just the person that has the ability to push, you know, uh, the sexiest, best. I mean, you know, like, you know, uh, like, I mean, the problem is, is that you're not taking enough shirtless selfies. You know, you're not yeah. taking enough Milano tan and fucking making yeah. weird, you know, uh, mantra yeah. fucking observations about life and, yeah. you know, butterflies and other weird shit. Well, and I think the problem is, is that there's so much opportunity to push information and the person that can push and jam the most in, whether or not it's a quality message or not, is the one that fucking these brain soaked idiots are fucking listening to. Yeah. And here's the thing. I look at it this way. You can have a bar stool and it'll stand on three legs, right? Not, not two. It'll stand on three. The three legs for me are how good did you get? That's one. How long could you stay that good? Two. And what is your level of experience as far as education is concerned? If you're highly educated, you've pushed the limits physically and you've stayed at that limit for a long time, you probably have an opinion that I would love to listen to. Now, doesn't mean that a person only has one of those, doesn't have something to offer. But in my opinion, if you don't have those three, sit the fuck down and let somebody else step up like a Fred Hatfield or someone of that nature and explain to you how to get better. If everybody else would shut up and let those people take the reins, we wouldn't have these problems. But again, we got one guy that looks amazing. So we think he knows everything. We got another guy that's got a PhD that's never lifted a weight before. And people think he knows everything. Right. I mean, so you, you, you have to have all three. If you got all three, I would love to hear your opinion. And I feel that we need to have a baseline of what makes an opinion matter. And for me, I have to have those three barstool uh, legs. Yeah, well, you have to accomplish something. I mean, that should be the basic. Have you never accomplished anything? I mean, not to say you might not have good information, but, uh, man, uh, if I want to squat 1,000 pounds, I'm going to go talk to somebody that's probably squatted 1,000 pounds. Yeah, because you probably don't know about it reading from a book. Yeah, I mean, I and, yeah, I mean, the uh, I, I remember – you know, what was it? 2011. And this was a long time ago. Maybe it was even 2010. Uh, Louis called me on the phone and, you know, he was trying to put together a certification, what you said you'd, you'd done and, uh, or you were in the process of writing. He needed to put together a board. So he calls me and goes, Hey, would you sit on the board for us? So I went out there to Westside. And I think this is after your time there. And I only know that because, uh, Louis was real good at talking shit on people. And, uh, you and Vogue were, two of the individuals that he was most fucking hot on. So I'm assuming this was at, the, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming th- this is when Vogerpol had started. What was it? Lexon or Lexon. Yep. And so, yep. yeah, Louie was fucking hot as hell on all that. 
But, um, you know, I mean, so I went out there and trained for a couple of weeks and, you know, got to see his groups. And I think we had like 16 meals in a row. And finally, by the end of this thing, I realized that the West Side Method and everything that he talks about in all the books only exists in that fucking shitty little gym with him, you know, the fucking music at level 10, fucking playing the ringmaster. Yep. You're exactly right. So, yeah, it's good. It, it was, uh, it, it was cool. And then we were super fortunate when we saw you, we got a chance to do a podcast with him. And then, you know, obviously the last one he did. So it was, uh, yeah, it, it was, it, it was interesting walking yeah. in and remembering Louie over the years and then seeing him and being like, holy shit, dude, he's at the end of his fucking, he's at the end of this fight. Yeah. He was at the end of the fight. Like I said, he, I thought he was at the end of the fight when I left, honestly, he, he looked completely different from 1999 to 2007. I mean, like a night shades difference, you know, just from the sleeping, I think the sleeping is what caught him, but. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but I actually checked in because my fire guys, they can get that information from the hospitals. He, uh, he, I guess he went into the hospital and was really sick and they did the tests on him and his kidneys were done, done. They weren't even functioning. And he signed himself out and six or eight hours later, he was dead. Yeah. He, uh, when we saw him, he had such bad edema. So my dad passed away a couple of years ago and he actually had stomach cancer and also had liver cancer. And so he, he had something called cirrhosis where the body was basically just eating itself and it was pumping out his fluid. And they were having to go and do this thing called paracentesis where they were draining fluid out of his chest cavity. And when I came in and I saw Louie and I saw the edema in his body, I was like, man, I mean, that looked like my dad at the very end. And then, you know, he broke yeah, one of the valves I, in his heart. He just so, lived and he took steroids for 50 plus years. I mean, he had a good run, you know. Dude, he fucking, uh, dude, to make it to 72, I mean, fuck, dude, he threw his, uh, you know, he threw his body on the funeral pyre. And then uh, when uh, Tom texted us, I was like, hey, uh, are we going to? show up and put a bunch of pallets in the, in, in the, you know, West side parking lot and set them on fire. I was kind of thinking Viking funeral. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, Hey guys, I'm going to hop off here and get some lunch. I'm about to die. Cool, man. So, Thank you so much for uh, tuning into power at the radio, dude. And uh, look, look forward to seeing you anytime. Yeah, man. And quickly, man, where, where can people find you social and website? Um, winningstrength.com. We got manuals, equipment. I got, I mean, I'm sure you guys have seen the belt squat. I know you guys actually worked on it. Yep. Um, bench presses, fat bars. Um, also we're on obviously my, my Instagram page, real Matt winning. I don't know if there's any fake ones out there, but that's the real one. And then, um, that we show a bunch of exercises there. And then, um, the YouTube channel, actually, we just shot a video on Louis Simmons and the entire story. It dropped while we were talking. Um, the winning strength is the YouTube channel. It's growing really well. And we put out a lot of good information there for everybody for absolutely free. Cool. Excellent. All awesome, right. man. Well, thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio, and we'll Thank see you, you soon. See you, homies. See ya. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Well, if you didn't learn everything you need to know about Matt Wenning, you can follow him at Real Matt Wenning on Instagram. Until next time, bye!